Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers Podcast with your host, Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers Podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics, including health, fitness, and training strategies, to name a few. If you enjoy the show and wish to support, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon or wish to make a one-time donation, please visit the show PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPO pod. Links to both of those can be found in the show notes. Also, consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform and on our video version of the show hosted on YouTube. For updates and notifications, please visit my social media channels at Zach Bitter on Instagram, at ZBitter on Twitter, and at Zach.Bitter on Facebook. If you wish to sponsor the show or have any other questions or feedback, please reach out to me at HPOPodcast at gmail.com. Welcome back to another episode of Human Performance Outliers Podcast. I'm really excited to announce what is going to be kind of a branch off of the typical show. Uh, It's going to be probably about at least an eight episode series where we're going to outline some kind of specifics or do some deep dives into low carbohydrate nutrition. And the way that this is going to kind of develop is we're going to base it off of one of our previous guests, one of my coaching clients and one of my good friends, Michelle and her new book called The Dietitian's Dilemma. And if you haven't read the book or seen the book, I would really recommend checking it out. It kind of outlines a bunch of really interesting topics and just looks at the role of low carbohydrate nutrition within those topics. And the way we're going to kind of break this series of episodes down is we're going to look at each chapter kind of individually, bring in an expert to kind of share their insight into that particular topic. And at the end of it, it'll be a nice little kind of commentary to go alongside Michelle's book when you go and pick that up. So uh, I'm welcoming today onto the show, my co-host for this series, Michelle, and uh, our first expert, uh, Dr. Dr. Westman. Thank you guys for taking some time and, and joining me today. Oh, Zach, thank you so much. I'm super excited. Yeah, it's been kind of fun to kind of start to put this together. First, just, you know, getting to read your book, Michelle, and then also, starting to line up some of the guests, some that have been on the show in the past, some like Dr. Westman, who is making his first appearance on the show. So it's going to be a fun add on to the, to the, to the typical podcast stuff. I think, I think the listeners are going to really like, like this side of the show and get some value, but to get things kind of started, Michelle, maybe just introduce us to a little bit of the book itself and some of the topics you hit on, and then we can start diving into the specific topic for today. Yeah, thank you so much. So the book is called The Dietitian's Dilemma. And, you know, what The Dietitian's Dilemma really is, it's actually, you know, kind of the healthcare provider's dilemma. And so what I share in the book, you know, I have my story. So my story actually had a pretty serious eating disorder when I was much younger. And then as I, you know, moved through my adolescence, and I actually became a dietitian because I wanted to help a lot of people. And once I became a dietitian, you know, the current, uh, we, we had to practice the nutrition guidelines. We had to give people lots of carbohydrates and, you know, it didn't matter what disease state, didn't matter if you're underweight, overweight, kidney failure, diabetes. And unfortunately in my practice, I just saw that it wasn't really helping a lot of people. In fact, a lot of people were um, getting worse. And as you'll read in the book, you know, I actually lost my own health and we can talk more about that, you know, as well. And I, I decided to switch to a low carbohydrate animal-based diet. And I was actually 
And I was scared. Everything I'd heard is that, oh, meat and fat kill you. It could be bad. There's a lot of fear mongering that goes, you know, even in the dietetics profession. And what I found that was my health was completely restored. And because of that, you know, I ended up doing a really deep dive. I ended up pulling tons of clinical trials. I cite over 180 clinical trials in the book. So if somebody says like, well, where's the evidence? And Dr. Westman can certainly speak to this, but we actually have, you know, more clinical trials on the efficacy of low carbohydrate diets than any other diet out there. And, you know, honestly, I became really angry. Like, why, why am I not allowed to teach this? I was told like, you know, it's still considered in most hospital settings. Dietitians cannot, cannot teach low carbohydrate education. And so I decided, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to write a book. I wanted to pick five disease states that I thought I could speak really well about. So today, you know, we're going to break down diabetes <laughs> and that's one that unfortunately, you know, diabetes is an epidemic in this country. Then I um, go into mental illness, including major depression, um, anxiety, bipolar disorder, eating disorders. So this is something that, um, you know, actually has the research behind this is very new, but it's really, uh, it's not, it's, it's not popular for people to say like, Hey, a low carbohydrate diet can actually potentially help with eating disorders, but we'll dive into that in the book sarcopenia, which is muscle wasting. We talk about how important protein in a low carbohydrate diet can be. And then heart disease, because there's just so much fear still that like, oh my gosh, if I eat meat, you know, I'm going to get heart disease. If I eat saturated fat, I'm going to get heart disease. So that was the goal with the book was to, you know, to share my story, to highlight these disease states, and then to talk about where the nutrition guidelines came from. Because if you guys don't know, it's bizarre. I think most people will kind of be like, oh, I'm sure there's some like you know, corporate or some politicalness going on in it, but it sounds like a sci-fi movie with just a little bit of sprinklings of fact. Like it's it's pretty gnarly. Um, and then you know we have a chapter on plants versus animals because there is a narrative right now that everybody should be following a plant-based diet and that's very healthy for you and very healthy for the planet. And unfortunately, that's you know that's actually not fact-based. So we'll really get into that. Because it was, it's very important to me to make sure that I am, you know, whatever diet way of eating that I follow is actually good for the planet as well. Then finally, I have a getting started chapter. Um, Cause you know, people, <laughs> you don't want to read a book and be like, what do I do now? Uh, I do have 25 testimonies. I'm so grateful to have, you know, 25 people that gave some really powerful testimonies. And I actually had a lot of people ask me, um, what do you do to run? Because like I shared at the very beginning, you know, I lost my health. I was a marathon runner and endurance athlete. And, you know, before I reached out to you, I, I couldn't run at all. Like I was just, you know, my muscles were sore. I wasn't able to, you know, I, I was on such a high carbohydrate, high carbohydrate athlete that I, um, for such a long period of time, my body was just stressed to the max. I could barely run, you know, two to five miles. And after switching to a low carb animal based diet, and it took a while, you know, um, it's not a week or a couple of weeks thing. It took several months, but, you know, I ended up running my first ultra marathon and covering 44.63 miles in six hour or yeah, in six hours. So I won the race. And so I've had people, I didn't know people were so curious about running, but I have a little chapter in what I eat to, to run. So, so yeah. So, you know, if you're listening to this and you're, you're just curious, you're curious about a low carbohydrate diet or your mom or dad has diabetes and you're just they're taking insulin and you're wondering if that's the best way or you, you have a relative that's really frail, like sarcopenia that doesn't have any muscle mass, or you're just, you know, you're a little bit overweight or you want to improve your endurance running. I think this is going to be a really exciting series where we can get into a lot of different topics. And just a quick plug, the book and ebook are on Amazon. So dietitians love that. Awesome. Yeah, Michelle, uh, just so the listeners know too, if they want to uh, 
dive into a little bit of your background too. It wasn't that long ago you were on HPO podcasting your episode 222. So folks, if you do want to have maybe an introduction to this series of episodes and kind of have a little bit of, hear a little more about what Michelle was talking about in terms of her background, definitely check that episode out and uh, kind of get yourself uh, sorted in terms of where she's coming from or some of that stuff. But, uh, you know, <clears throat> we may not have to do as many guest introductions with some of the return guests for this series, but since uh, Dr. Westman, since this is the first time you're on the show, uh, maybe maybe share with our listeners a little bit about your background for those who aren't as in detailed in the in the low carb community as as maybe others are. Oh sure, well, and thank you for having me on the show, Zach. We crossed paths a few times. One time at um, I think it was San Diego Low Carb Low Carb USA, uh, Doug Reynolds and his group. Uh, yeah. Great to hear you speak there, and um, I refer folks to you when I, when the low carb questions go out of my pay grade. <laughs> I'm so my my I'm an internal medicine specialist, and like Michelle, we weren't taught the low carb diet. In fact, in the medical world, and I I hate to say this, but I've been a physician now for 30 years at Duke, and I'm not sure where the time went, but so I, I'm. I think of myself as the, the, one of the research teams that sort of um, put the science around low carb and keto to make sure that there were, was a tolerant, tolerable range that you could be in and still be, uh, be, be safe or even thrive. Uh, so as an internal medicine specialist, I realized my tools were, were not good enough to treat the obesity and diabetes, the high blood pressure, the things that a traditional internist uh, has to treat where we teach doctors even today to use medication for all these things. So that didn't satisfy me. I, I went out to get special training and in a large part, because I listened to my patients, a couple of my patients were doing the Atkins diet back, you know, before 2000. And it was curious to me. It, it was, you know, exciting because they basically fixed their problem, the weight loss without my help. They didn't even need, need a doctor to do it. So back then I had concerns about safety and, and whether you could do it long-term. So we started to study it. So we have been studying the diet and using the, the low carb keto diet in the clinical setting, meaning treating people with diabetes, high blood pressure, um, obesity, of course, as well. But we've been doing that now for 20 years. And we published our papers in the early, well, I'd say from 2000 to 2010 in the medical literature, the high quality publications, randomized trials. And as Michelle said, now there's so many studies all over the world, the low carb diet really has had the most you know, scrutiny about it because everyone thought it was bad, but it's not bad. <laughs> you know? so, um, I, I just want to try to bring people up to speed that all of the same concerns that you may hear from your doctor today, I had those 20 years ago. You know, can you eat this fat and be healthy? Is it okay to not eat carbohydrates? You know, can you run without sugar and starch? I mean, I thought you carb loaded. You know, all these things were going through my mind 20 years ago. <laughs> so I went and learned from doctors who had used it for 30 years during their careers. And then we wrapped the science around it, like Jeff Volick at UConn, now at Ohio State. We're one of two groups, Jeff, Jeff being the other, that started studying the diet. And you know, I don't think we, I'm not known in the 
the athletic world because my that's not my world. My world is diabetes, high blood pressure, the clinical medicine. So I became president of the Obesity Medicine Association and taught other doctors the low carb keto diet. And we've been doing that for 10 years. And at Duke, we've been using this for 15 years in a university-based clinical practice of, of basically I call it keto medicine now because it's basically like internal medicine, but I usually uh, just use a keto diet. Uh, and then in Gary Taubes' book recently, The Case for Keto, he tells the story of how my clinic was one of the clinics that taught many doctors who are using the keto diet now. So I, I guess to summarize it, my, as my brother says, who's a marketing guy, he says, ah, that's my brother, Eric, he validated the Atkins diet. And then I'm like, well, I did more than that, you know, <laughs> so, we actually, so we researched and we studied and, and as a clinical doctor, I've always studied and, and used in my clinic what I've been studying. So that, that iterative process going back and forth, testing out things in the, the real clinical world. Well, so I suppose looking back, um, Dr. Volek was doing research in the exercise world while I was doing research in the medical world with diabetes, high blood pressure, obesity. And I trained lots of other doctors in the Obesity Medicine Association. I'm the past president of that organization. So I've been now, you know, 20 years in the low carb keto world in the medical setting. Uh, but <laughs> my brother kind of all sums it up. He's in marketing. So he has a way with words. He says, oh, that's, that's my brother, Eric. He validated the Atkins diet. <laughs> You know, I was like, that's my whole career in, in one sentence, but, um, but that's essentially what it was. You know, the clinical work had never had any research around it. And um, uh, we were like in parallel to Dr. Volek's lab, Dr. Yancey and I doing research at Duke for the last 20 years. Yeah, it's really interesting because I think a lot of times, like sometimes if it weren't for the Atkins movement in general, I think people maybe would have altogether forgotten that there was like some earlier years within the low carb stuff and the keto stuff, but uh, it, it has been around. We've talked about that a bit in some other episodes of just like, you know, when it was first actually proposed as a, as a dietary intervention and it, you know, goes back quite a ways. So there is some, some precedent set. It's not kind of as pioneery as maybe some people think who've kind of jumped on the most recent wave of that sort of stuff. But it's always interesting to kind of hear, who and what was all involved in some of that earlier stuff. And like, do you remember like when it kind of clicked for you where you were like, okay, so this is some, this is like an application that I will be able to use with some of my patients that is going to be potentially groundbreaking for them and maybe a lot of other people. Yeah. Well, so my story after I saw a couple of patients is I visited doctors who were using it. Uh, to try to figure out what to study. I was convinced this is worth studying. And so our method is based on uh, Dr. Atkins, Dr. Eads, Dr. Uh, um, Rosedale, Dr. Bernstein. It's a lot of clinical doctors at the time. And it was, you know, I, I, I was trained in clinical trials and was part of smoking cessation clinical trials for about eight years before I did this. So I kind of knew that it took two or three studies to know that you had, um, you know, um, random randomization. So people didn't know what diet they were getting. And, and you, after a while you get the 
um, idea that yes, this is safe. There's no, you know, no one's dropping over. You know, like you have to remember, 20 years ago, people were afraid they would die the next day. You know, when they stopped eating carbs, right? I mean, so uh, there was uh, the fear was was heightened at the time. So you know, it took me you know three or four studies where you know we're not. I mean, we scrutinized the data pretty carefully and then published them. So it's not just here in my experience. We did the due diligence to get through the peer review process and publish them in medical journals. And um, well, it, it was after doing two or three of those studies that I sort of remembered that I had visited these other doctors and they had had years and years of experience. But at first, I, it's like I didn't let that count. You know, mm -hmm. I, I um, wanted to come to it with an open mind, but skeptical. And uh, so like most researchers, you're not going to say that it's okay until you study it. And that's where we are now, that the, all these other researchers just haven't studied it. So they don't comment on it. Or at least the ones who are open-minded are kind of agnostic or, or neutral now. They say, well, it has a role. It has, they don't know that it, what's best or they don't, at least they don't say that it's bad anymore. And that I, there are a certain number of researchers who read other people's research not many do, <laughs> but those who <laughs> read other people's research at least say, okay, there's a lot of data behind it. And that's why I think the kind of green light was given two or three, four years ago for products and, and you know, this popularization in the last few years, which is great to see, I have to say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's definitely, you know, the, the when it kind of clicked in my head as like oh this is more than just like a little bit of a fringe movement that's going to blow away anytime soon was probably after i'd been doing it for a few years i first started my low carb stuff back in i think it was late 2011 so it was like right before we started seeing a lot of products show up in the store that were related to keto or low carb now you go in and there's actually decent marketing around it to i mean to comparatively speaking, I should say, there's obviously a lot of marketing again for, for the cheap carb, carb uh, based food products as well. But like, I'll go into a grocery store now and you'll see like, uh, you know, keto friendly signs on products. Well, just products that are specifically marketed towards folks following a low carbohydrate ketogenic diet. And to me, when I first started seeing that, I was thinking to myself like, oh, okay. So the, the corporate world is betting on this sticking around more than just a year or two. So I was like, okay, I must not be just me having some success with this. If, if, if I'm seeing that, uh, but it is kind of, it is interesting to, to think that like sometimes that stuff doesn't necessarily always line up with, uh, with like how soon someone like yourself maybe gets interested in it. Well, yeah, it's a problem if you're ahead of the curve in terms of business now, in research, usually that's where you want to be, right. but the research money for low-carb and keto has just been non-existent, and, and it echoes Michelle's experience that the mainstream folks, there's still this fear, uh, not, there's a fear of studying it, which is just kind of crazy. It, mm -hmm. It's just food, you know? <laughs> yeah, you know, actually, that's an interesting topic that I've thought about, because I think there's some parallel there with the endurance community, and specifically maybe coaches within it, because when I listen to other coaches and other like, like maybe leaders in the conversation around sports nutrition with endurance runners, sometimes I just think there's like, I mean, there's obviously context here. Like, you know, there's a big difference between like an Olympic 5k athlete 
and, you know, someone finishing in the middle of a pack of a hundred mile race. Those are like almost apples and oranges to a degree. Um, but the, you know, the, at the, at the same time, especially when I start getting into just specific, when we narrow that context down, when we get specifically into ultra marathon and we narrow it down even further and start looking at the types of events people are typically building up towards within the ultra running community, which is oftentimes races that take double digit hours, if not an entire day, 24 plus hours, sometimes it's like, if you're coaching and you're an absolutist in the sense that it's moderate to high carb or nothing, and you're willing to tell your coaching clients that to me, that kind of crosses the line of just like saying, well, the science isn't here yet. Once it gets here, I'll get on board and start offering multiple options to my clients. To me, that says kind of like you're kind of burying your head in the sand. And if you're going to be an absolutist around moderate to high carbohydrate for people that are asking you about alternatives, you're not only missing the boat for some people who could probably benefit from it, but you, you may even just be kind of avoiding the topic. So you don't have to actually go through the process of learning how to teach it, which, you know, if you're coaching like tens or even a hundred other coaches and thousands of athletes, you know, that is a big undertaking probably to go, well, now I can't just offer this moderate carb approach to everyone and say, Hey, the science says this is what works. And this is the only thing that works. So if, if you want to go outside of science, you got to do that on your own. That's not part of my, my role as your coach or advisor. Whereas I just, that, that, that's the thing that frustrates me. Cause when I have a client come to me and they want to know about nutrition, it's like, well, we look at the pros and cons of high carb, moderate carb. And we look at the pros and cons of going a low carbohydrate ketogenic route uh, and then, uh, then I let them pick which one they want to try. And if they, if they pick one and it doesn't work the way we want it to, we can always redirect. Uh, but I'm not going to try to tell them all the good things about one and then all the bad things about the other and not kind of share the other side of, of either one of those when, when they're trying to make that type of a decision at this point with, with the extreme endurance cl- uh, community anyhow. So I guess my long winded diatribe there is got a question at the end of it, which is like, is that kind of what you see within kind of the medical community to a degree too, Dr. Westman, where it's like, obviously not everyone's going to be coming at the same way, but is there like kind of a fear of like, I've just like really learned this process well, and I don't want to necessarily expose myself to having to kind of go back and learn a whole nother way of offering things as well. Well, I, it's not even that glowing. I mean, most medical doctors know nothing about nutrition. And we're really just taught how to give medication. So maybe in the dietitian's world where you're taught one size, the high carb way. uh, But in the medical world, it's even worse. I mean, don't don't ask your MD or DO who's gone through US schools for for unless they've done, you know, a lot of learning on their own. Don't ask them for advice about nutrition. I mean, that they're going to give you what works for them. That, you know. so, yeah, uh, yeah, Zach, you know, and from the dietitian, and this is, you know, this is the frustration. This is the dietitian's dilemma. You know, this is as a dietitian, I was taught that the way to treat diabetes is that we're going to give somebody a consistent carbohydrate diet, and then we're going to dose them with insulin. And so what I mean by that is, you know, every meal, you're going to get 75, 90 grams of carbohydrates, and then we'll dose you with, you know, amount of insulin to keep your blood sugar stable. And even as a young dietitian, you know, I asked like, well, that doesn't seem to make sense. If their blood sugar is already high, why would we be giving them carbohydrates, which it doesn't matter what carbohydrates it is. It doesn't matter if it's apples or Snickers bars, you know, if that is still going to raise your blood sugar, specifically if you're diabetic, why, why, why don't we pull the carbohydrates back? 
And, you know, and if you're in acute care, which most dietitians, I worked in acute care, you're really not there for their long-term problem. Like most of the time, if they're in the hospital, they might be there for an amputation or an infection. So the diabetes is just kind of a secondary thing. Like I was told, like, look, we're not even talking about that. If they want to go deal with that, they can, you know, go to a, um, an outpatient dietitian. But then unfortunately, you're going to get that same, you know, poor education. So there really is this, there really is this um, unwillingness to look at other alternatives, you know, and, you know, as we talk about in the book, the Academy of Nutrition is heavily sponsored by PepsiCo, Frito-Lay, um, you know, the company that makes a lot of those sugary boost drinks. And there's this kind of the, uh, the dogma is the best way to treat diabetes is to have carbohydrates consistently throughout the day. And as I um, say in the book, I have an analogy. It's kind of like setting your house on fire consistently. <laughs> like, you know, you're, if you're consistently setting your house on fire, if you have diabetes, eating carbohydrates is like throwing flames on your house. And then using insulin is like putting those flames out. It's like, why not not put, not set your house on fire? And unfortunately, like you said, there's just this, this fear and this misunderstanding. I mean, if you Google a healthy diet, it's going to tell you to eat fruits and vegetables. It's going to divide carbohydrates into the good carbohydrates, you know, the, the fruits and grains, and then the bad carbohydrates, the sugar, but they all are basically broken down the same way, you know, and certainly we could get into the nuances of how fructose is metabolized by the liver. But just in general, when you come back to the fact that out of the three macronutrients, protein, fat, and carbohydrates, carbohydrates are the only macronutrient that our body does not need. That's not essential. Yet you will die without protein. You will die without fat. You know, we're seeing now that people are thriving without carbohydrates. I was shocked to see research. I have patients in acute care. I had one guy that lost both of his legs amputated and part of his hand. And we can actually reverse diabetes in as little as eight days on a low carb diet. That blows my mind. If we can reverse it, within less than two weeks, why are people suffering for 20 years? Why is the dietetics community not taking a stand and saying, you know what, this isn't working. And just like you said, Zach, you know, I'm not a moralist. I'm not, I'm not somebody who thinks there's only one way to fix everything, but I think we have to provide this information. We have to say, Hey, this is your option. You can follow a high carb diet. We will dose you with insulin. And in 20 years, we'll probably have to cut your leg off. Or you can try this other option. I'm being a little bit, um, uh, frank, maybe overly frank, but after seeing so many very, very painful things, you know, I talk about, I've seen wounds down to the bone pressure ulcers. I've seen people as young as their forties that have had strokes, blindness, um, you know, incontinence, uh, it's a big problem. And it's something that has in my, in my opinion, a relatively simple solution. And when I've talked to other dietitians about this, there are so many excuses oh, Michelle, meat is expensive. Meat will cause cancer. Fat is bad for you. You know what? The truth is we have, <laughs> by the book, we have lots of clinical data that that's not true. We have all of human evolution if you want to look at that. And when it comes down to it, you know, you know what's really expensive is a night in the hospital, you know, will cost you enough to probably buy you about, you know, 400,000 pounds of ground beef. <laughs> but truly, we have to get back to common sense. We have to get back to a little bit of critical thinking. And I think as, a med as medical professionals, we have to say, this isn't working. It's time to explore other options. It's time to put fear on the back burner. And it's also time to be uncomfortable for a minute. We're such a quick fix, instant gratification society. 
man, I feel terrible. I want a cookie that makes me feel better. There's carbohydrates. I get that dopamine response. I get sugar, you know, and if you do go to a low carbohydrate diet, you're not going to feel great for a week or so. We don't like not feeling great, you know? So we have to be able to ask tough questions. We have to have medical professionals and dietitians that are saying like, look, we need a better approach. We need, you know, alternative options. And just like I said, I, in the book, I ask a lot of questions. Does it make sense if we can reverse diabetes in less than two weeks that your parents, your grandparents, and maybe you, if you're listening to this, are going to be suffering with diabetes for 20 years? You know, there is such a beautiful quality of life when you align with human physiology, when you eat the foods that the human body was meant to utilize and process. And I get really fired up about it um, just because I, I keep seeing the, you know, the same repetitions. Like when I worked in the hospital, you know, people would literally have their leg amputated and for lunch, they'd get pasta rolling a cookie. I'm like, what is going on? And then right now, at least in the, the hospitals that I worked in, I no longer work in the hospital setting, but I was not allowed to talk about low carbohydrate education. So there's my mom. <laughs> I'll, I'll let you jump in here, Dr. Westman, since you're, you're our guest, but I do want to ask one quick question. Like, so you can't even offer a second option yet. Like that's not even a potential in like, does, I guess maybe I should back up. Like when I was a teacher, one thing that I always really loved to do with my students, especially ones that were like a little harder to kind of get jump started on things was give them some options, even if it's like three choices versus one command always worked better success rate wise. Like, and it wasn't always the option I expected them to pick either. And each student represented a different choice a lot of times. So one thing I recognized early was people want to know that if, if, if phase one does not work for them, they're not a failure. It just means they may need a different approach so if I would just preempt that with multiple options right out the gate, they were more likely to come in with an open mind. And if they did fail with one option, knowing they went back and said, oh, that just one didn't fit for me personally. And well, let's go this way now. And it always strikes me as odd as that, as that's not really an approach that seems very well used, I guess, within the nutrition community of just like, hey, here's a few different options. Which one of this matches kind of your preferences or what can be sustainable for you to adhere to long-term versus something that maybe will be a quick fix and then ultimately fail long-term. Yeah. And I'm definitely, you know, I've said on other podcasts too, I'm not anti-carb, you know, we're you and I, Zach are athletes. We eat carbohydrates and Dr. Westman can talk about how, you know, I don't, we don't think necessarily everybody has to be zero carb or even, you know, very, very low carb under 20 grams of carbohydrates. But as far as uh, teaching in the hospital setting, I worked in a, a few different hospital settings and every hospital setting usually has its own standard guidelines that you are required to adhere to. And usually that comes with, these are our handouts. These are the only things you can print out and teach. Um, one time I printed out something else, I got suspended, you know, and it was just, it was a low carbohydrate handout. And so normally what they're going to do, um, cause you know, I'm an RD, LD, LD is licensed dietitian in each state is licensed, um, is the, every hospital, at least the hospitals I've worked in. And this is why, if you go to like a coaching practice or potentially do your own private thing, you can pop, you can probably step outside of these guidelines, right? But every hospital will adopt the um, Academy of Nutrition guidelines. So they say, these are our standard of practice. These are our very specific guidelines you can download from the drive, that is all. And also that has to do with insurance reimbursement as well. So if you teach outside of that, you might not be insurance reimbursed, hence they want you to teach exactly that. Um, so I am encouraged to see, though, and Dr. Westman can elaborate on this. There are, you know, low carb 
um, organizations. There are low carb dietitians and nutritionists that have kind of stepped outside the box and are doing kind of their own side coaching practice. Well, when it comes to seeing a lot of people um, in an acute care setting, uh, it, it's you're pretty much having to teach the standard guidelines. Yeah, you know, I, I, I agree with everything you said, Michelle. The, it's one size fits all for diabetes. Everyone gets carbs. Uh, I've had to teach and train my patients when they go into the hospital to write on the form that they're allergic to bread or they're gluten intolerant, they're allergic to fruit, they're allergic to rice and pasta. And what happens is it doesn't compute. So a dietitian calls them and says, well, what can you have in the hospital? Well, I can have eggs and meat. And then they provide it. <laughs> so it's not like the food isn't there. It's just the, the, you have to go around the system there for diabetes. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm an eternal optimist and that I, I see things changing, but it's excruciatingly slow. And most doctors are given guidelines for diabetes to give carbs and give medicine. And they've made the bar for success so low to have an A1C under seven is at goal, which normal is fine. So, so what's happened is the medical mainstream is, is satisfied with, with mediocre results. So, you know, is that what you want or, or do you wanna handle the nutrition maybe in a different way? And you no, know, Zach, people are not given choices. I, you know, if, if I could get to the level that you are of here, you have this choice that other doctors would do, I'd be really thrilled. But we're nowhere near that. The Dietitian's Dilemma podcast series is made possible by our friends at S-Fuels. S-Fuels is both Michelle and my workout, recovery, and lifestyle product of choice. They don't leave our carb-craving friends hanging, but make sure they stay true to their roots by boasting a wide range of low-carbohydrate products to help anyone make low-carb living and performance much easier. Personally, I like to lean on their S-Fuels Life Mix and Revive in my morning coffee just to give me a little bit of extra fat fuel and protein to start the day. Their Life Bars I'll turn to when I need a protein-packed snack on those higher-energy demanding days. Their S-Fuels Train product when I need a bit of extra fat for a long workout and their Race Plus to help keep liver and muscle glycogen topped off on my harder, longer efforts. You can check out their full lineup at sfuelsgolonger.com. That is S-F-U-E-L-S-G-O-L-O-N-G-E-R.com and enter promo code ZACHB5, that is all caps, Z-A-C-H-B, the number five, for 5% off your next order. Thanks for tuning in. And now back to the show. Yeah, you know, and that, that's the thing that I always find, the, or the part of that I find really interesting is one of the kind of the, one of the rebuttals to like a low carb or certainly a ketogenic diet. And then even more so for a zero carb diet is, oh, well, it's not sustainable. Like, what is it going to have like a 5% success rate? And in terms of people being able to adhere to it long-term. And I can appreciate that. Like if it's something that you're not going to be able to adhere to long-term, then you probably do have to be thinking of the next step, but that just gives more incentive in my mind to offer options then, because even if it is, let's say five to 10% success rate, which is going to be basically any strict dietary trend line is going to have a very low adherence rate. And th that just tells me we need more options because if there's five to 10% of the population that does 
do very well with a specific dietary pattern, but they're never exposed to it. They're just gonna be banging their heads against the wall their entire life. So why not expose them to all the options available? Let them find the one they can stick to that gets them in those healthy markers and then, you know, let them live their life versus trying to find one that has a hundred percent success rate, which we're never going to get, obviously. Well, you know, I have to say, I have to push back a little. I hear that a lot that, oh, it's not sustainable. Yes, it is. <laughs> I mean, so we're actually, we, we take data from clinical trials. And remember, I, I designed them, I ran them, I learned how to do them. If you extrapolate from only clinical trials, you actually get a very skewed view of humanity. You know, have you ever volunteered for a study at a university? <laughs> I mean, most people will never do that. I mean, so you actually get people who aren't quite matching the normal population. So we've been able to teach, well, then how you teach keto or low carb makes all the difference. If, if you think that, you know, if once a month you go to McDonald's and that's going to kill you, so you never go and then you fall off because you had to go to the fancy place. I mean, so as long as you realize that keeping the carbs low and every now and then having some, the way you do keto, if it's flexible, then it is sustainable. So actually when someone tells me that is that, well, it's not sustainable, I just turn around and say, yes, it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's a good point too. And I think, yeah, because there is a, I think a bit of confusion amongst a lot of people, or maybe it's just a, a, a an argument tactic that tends to resonate where they, I see this happen all the time too, within the endurance community where they're like, oh, well, yeah, look at this, this ketogenic diet. It's just not going to work if you're eating 30 to 50 grams of carbohydrates per day. Um, and it, it, it's a straw man built to like, essentially knock down a low carbohydrate approach or a nuanced thought process within the context of, Hey, this person may be burning two to three times their metabolic resting rate because of their lifestyle. Therefore a ketogenic diet or a low carbo diet for them may look different than the person who is trying to help with their type two diabetes and maybe getting to the gym a couple times a week. So like, I think there's that. And then I also think like, we're also asking a lot from a diet that we're not really allowing our professionals to leverage at a high degree. Because when you look at organizations like Verda and their success rate, it's much higher. And I I can't help but think that some of that is because they're working within a little bit more of a flexible range. I think if I remember right, when we had Dr. Jeff Stanley on the show, he said like they usually cap their, their, their patients at 20% carbohydrate or something like that is like the highest they'll ever get. Um, Which is, you know, all that's really doing is flipping fat and carbohydrates on its head. So then it's like, how, how is a, a moderate high carbohydrate diet with 20% fat in the remainder protein any more sustainable? It's just a preference at that point. Do you, would you rather eat fats or would you rather eat carbohydrates kind of in my, in my mind? And then it's also like the thing that I love about Verda is it offers this coaching. Essentially, there's all these like mechanisms in place to help somebody who would maybe feel like I'm out this out on my own here. And that loneliness, I think is a big reason why people ultimately kind of fail in any dietary practice. A lot of times is because they don't have that support there. They don't have a friend doing it with them or like a challenge attached to it or something like that. So I think there's a lot more conversation around that than, than what kind of how I maybe prefaced it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Doc, I think that was a really good um, thing. And I want to, Dr. Westman has a book out with Amy Berger called In Carb Confusion. And I love that book. And on one page, it just has like, you know, basically the one thing I learned as a dietitian 
and I take this for granted because this is kind of my life story and my life I've studied for years and years and years is a lot of people don't even understand what a carbohydrate is. And what I mean by that is I've gone into patient rooms and Dr. Westman, you might, might have this similar story is patients will say, you know, Michelle, I don't eat any carbs. And then we go through their diet and they're like, oh, I don't eat bread. I eat oatmeal in the morning. Oh, oh, I don't eat rice, but you know, I, I do have a bowl of berry, you know? So it's like, they don't really understand that type of thing. So I agree with you hundred percent that having somebody, having a coach, having some accountability, having somebody to at least kind of get you started. Because like you said, do you need to just eat, you know, beef and butter and, you know, some of those other things? No, you can certainly, if you can shift your diet to where it's even 15 to 20%, they, they, they showed, you know, I have some studies in the book, it didn't have to be that, that standard keto diet. But once you reduce those carbs, that was really the kicker specifically for diabetes and obesity was reducing the carbs significantly caused, caused the difference. Because when you do that, you know, you're keeping your insulin low and finally allowing your body to utilize, um, fat for fuel. But yeah, Dr. Westman, do you have thoughts on that? Or did you see that in your, in your clinical setting? Yeah, well, I also want to just mention the Virda program because it's fantastic. I, I'm, I'm not part of Virda, and I, I'm, a, if anything, I'm one of the critics who gets to be critical of what they do. <laughs> and, you know, I, I read the papers, they, they done, they've done some pioneering work in the medical literature. And the only downside is that it's just a little expensive for most people on their own. So, but health systems ought to offer this. They're going to save money in the long run. And I know Dr. Stanley pretty well. And I think Virta is fantastic. I know Sarah Hallberg, of course, Jeff Volick and Steve Finney, who are my kind of era of colleagues. Um, so Virta is fantastic. It's just not, uh, um, not affordable by everyone personally, but I think insurance companies should provide it. And, and yet the Andrew Carb Confusion book that we just put out, I got a professional writer in the keto space, Amy Berger, to help me operationalize and make very readable the idea of what carbs are, why you want to avoid them. So Andrew Carb Confusion sort of demystifies what a carb is and what level of carbs you may be at. So if you are an a, um, ultra marathoner or, or even just like my brother naturally exercises, he's the one who played you know, college basketball while I was, you know, busy in the library, um, happy in the library. So he's able to eat more carbs. And so End Your Carb Confusion is not just a keto book, although it does say you can do keto and gives you um, instructions on how to do uh, three different levels, including keto, but also higher carb levels, because um, some people can tolerate more carbs. It's a matter of metabolic flexibility and uh, tendency toward insulin resistance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think it is interesting too, because I know like my experience within the education side of it has been just interesting, just because like when you think of most people, if not all people for the most part are coming from a moderate to high carbohydrate background. So they've more or less kind of like intuitively learned that as like kind of their habits or their dietary preferences. And whenever you're trying to kind of break into that world, you kind of have to offer more upfront than what the traditional option is going to offer because people have to relearn what they're doing. And um, just while like Michelle and I are connected with a company called S fuels who like, I was fortunate enough to be able to see kind of the back end of that to a degree where like they said like, yeah, before we can ever really hope to sell products to people that are going to be helpful for their low carb approach is we need to actually have like a massive 
space of education in place so that they don't just use our product and say, Hey, this doesn't work and never come back. Like we, we need to make it sustainable. So we need to teach them how to actually do it first. So we don't have like this windfall of, uh, of, of dropouts essentially early on. And I found that really interesting. Cause I was like, yeah, I guess, uh, the barrier to entry is just going to be a little bit higher. So, um, it's nice to see some of these organizations like Verda yourself and, and Michelle kind of educate people on kind of what it is and, you know, the different phases of it too. Cause my hope is like, you know, that we don't necessarily get too cultish around just low carb in general, because ultimately I think that ends up alienating people versus kind of having like, Oh, that's cool. You got away with 20% carbohydrate. I could only get away with 10, but that's not a problem. That's individuality. Right. Well, you know, I've been involved with a company called Adapt Your Life now for about six years. And we started as a, a keto bar company. And, you know, one trick to making something keto is you just make them small, right? <laughs> you just don't have much. In fact, I teach in the advanced classes I teach is you can eat anything. Anything is keto. It's just you can't have much if there's a carb in it, you know. So a, a grape is keto if you have five grapes, right? So. Yeah, I'm not a purist and, you know, grapes are terrible and they're, you know, you just can't have much if you want to maintain the keto metabolism. I'm pretty matter of fact about that. But this year, we, we before COVID, we were out on weekend events, getting people together around keto diets, the ADAPT events. And then uh, this last year, we created a digital teaching platform called the Adapt Your Life Academy. And we have our first keto made simple masterclass that we just launched a couple months ago. And I've taught more people now in the last two months than I have in the last four years because of the digital platform to be able to scale it up, which is fantastic. So uh, keep in mind, if, if you know your listeners want the simple, keto made simple, kind of the type of low carb and keto that's been around 150 years without frills and products and all that, then consider Adapter Life Academy as a source of information. Awesome. Yeah. I think the, it's one of the, you know, there's always a, a, a positive and a negative with anything. And I think social media and the like limitless access to information is definitely as we're seeing like one of those things where it's, you can get down on some of it sometimes where it's like, well, there's just so much out there. How do I weave through it? But then at the same time, it's like the, the directions are there if you want to look for them. And there's some pretty cool organizations that I think, uh, have been able to kind of put out good content with that sort of stuff. And, um, and what did you say that app was called, Dr. Westman? Well, the Keto Made Simple Masterclass is oh, at, masterclass. at afterlifeacademy.com. And, you know, but I've seen people mess up keto, you know, and I, fortunately, as Michelle knows, if you keep to meat as your primary source, animal products, including eggs, fish, poultry and meat it's hard to mess up nutrition because there's so many nutrients in those foods but i've seen people get distracted by the keto pills and keto drinks and the apple cider vinegar all day and that's not what keto is and that actually can be harmful so i'm kind of on a mission to keep keto safe so that it doesn't get a bad name um uh, because the real food-based type of keto program is the one that's most studied. It's not one of these new, hey, take my keto drink. Yeah, that, that hasn't been studied. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think anytime you're looking at just like making it 
making it sustainable from a goal setting standpoint, you want to pay attention to that too, because like, you know, part of the reason some of these, like some of the like snack foods or the hyper palatable foods or the hyper packaged foods, I guess are such a problem is it's so easy to overconsume them. And then, you know, you can, you can certainly make a, like a very hard to deny, like high calorie ketogenic product too, which can be hard to set down. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I think you're right. I think having that foundation in the right spot through whole foods is definitely a great spot to kind of start out with, with folks who are going to getting into it for the first time. Yeah. And I think the education too, I just, it's just such my hope. And I'm so grateful Dr. Westman for people like you and Zach for your advocacy as well. Just, it was so, it was so helpful for me, you know, when I was transitioning from being a really high carbohydrate athlete to a low carbohydrate athlete that, you know, Zach, you really prepped me like, Hey, this is going to be a difficult transition. You know, these might be some symptoms, but you know, over time, you're, this is how you're going to feel. So I was prepared to not, you know, to not feel great. Like the first months during the transition. And when I say not feel great, I mean, I had lots of, <laughs> my muscles were better. I lots of things were going well, but my running was slower. Like there was a little bit of transition before I was able to kind of get back into more of the normal routine. So I think by kind of setting people up and saying, Hey, th- these are some meal ideas and this is how you're going to feel. And Um, because over time, I think people, I think more people would really embrace it if they, if they understood, you know, I think a lot of people just, they don't really know, they don't really know what the concept is. And I think there's so much marketing. People want to put like a pound of butter in their coffee and it's like, no, that's probably not the best idea if you're trying to lose weight. Right. So I think kind of understanding like how to get started, understanding why you're eating what you're eating, I think is really, is really important. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. So um, let's jump into a little bit more, I think, along the lines of uh, like type two di- diabetes and just kind of the, that topic at hand with with the low carb side of stuff. So um, for folks interested, is it similar to say like just anyone who's going to go into a, a low carbohydrate lifestyle where it's beneficial, at least in the early stages, maybe to be a a little more strict ketogenic as your body kind of adjusts to kind of shifting its primary fuel source, or is there a little more wiggle room even within that to kind of stay, I guess, more low carb versus strict keto? (laughs) Well, you know, I wish it were just a metabolic issue, but it's not, it's, it's the habit. It's the, there's some people who are frank, outright sugar addicts, and it's very difficult to taper down an addictive substance. You know, can you imagine telling someone just have the crack cocaine, you know, once a day for a while? You know, it, it doesn't work. So, so the actual implementation kind of, it depends on the metabolic state, but it also depends on the person that, to individualize what they're comfortable with eating. I do like to start everyone at, with a cold turkey, meaning all on one day, you stop having carbs. And I use a 20 gram level because then I know pretty much everyone is going to be in ketosis. That's 20 total grams. That's for the whole day, not just for the meal. Now, you know, you don't have to do that if, if you're, you know, you don't really, you're not doing this for weight loss. You're doing it for metabolic or, or performance enhancement. You might try 50 grams or 100 grams a day and see how you do for a while. Uh, but um, if you want to get the true 
keto shift in terms of metabolism. And what's exciting is that the ketones themselves seems, seem to have uh, almost hormonal effects in the body. So that uh, not only are they a fuel source, but they will turn different parts of the cells on, for example, to, and off so that you have less inflammation. And I'm told that that's one reason why runners uh, like Uzak can run and then not have so much time with the recovery phase because your, your muscles just tend to recover faster. And we think that's because there's less inflammation going on from when you do run. And you might not get those keto benefits without being much lower on the carbs. But, you know, I, one of the influential movies for me, and, and I, you know, so if you can imagine, I'm doing these diabetes studies and then this doctor from South Africa, you know, I never heard of him before, Timothy Noakes, uh, Dr. Noakes, and he, he contacts me and he, he said, I read your book and, and it's fascinating. And I've torn out the chapter on diet in my book. He'd been training people to run marathons for years. And so he pulled us all down to go to Cape Town for a meeting. And, I, and he learned about this from reading our book. Uh, and the interesting thing is that um, how much how many carbs you have can vary, like you're saying, and whether you're keto or not. I, I, I watched with fascination the movie Serial Killers 2, where Sami Inkanen and his wife go into the rowboat and they took six months to fully keto adapt. And that, but when they checked the keto meter, they were under, I think they were under 1.0 or less. So, so they weren't truly, you know, I don't know how many times they measured it. And I've never seen that paper result from that movie, but um, the number of grams per day and whether you're keto or not really depends on what you're trying to accomplish. In the medical world, if you're treating diabetes, if someone has hundreds of pounds to lose, which is fairly common in my office, I'm, I'm sorry to report, then yes, it works best if you stay under 20 total carbs for the day. But if you're a, you know, a runner, otherwise healthy, you're young, you're, uh, you're, you have flexibility with the metabolism, then you'll be able to eat more carbs. And I, you know, I don't think it's really been worked out scientifically to be able to say, you have these factors, these variables, this is your number. It's still trial and error, at best I know, um, unless mm -hmm. you're aware of other research on here's how you target it. I think it is pretty much get with a coach try a certain level and see how you do. Yeah. It's really interesting. I think when you introduce exercise, cause uh, like I can, uh, I can comment maybe a little bit on like the lower readings in the context of exercise, just cause I've got some data on myself with this and I've seen other folks kind of go through some testing and kind of, you know, it's, it's anecdotes, but it's uh, you know, it's, it's better than nothing, I guess. But like when you have someone who's kind of training a lot, uh, we do see lower blood ketone scores for whatever reason. I'm not sure if they actually know why that is specifically, but it's not at a, it's not at the compromise of their fat oxidation rates. So like take me, for example, when I was participating in the faster study, um, I was below I one. You were a participant. Yeah. Yeah. I was actually able to be part of that, which is really cool because, yeah. um, I mean, I went in with sub 10% carbohydrate intake, obviously it was very tightly controlled once you arrived in terms of what you were going to eat around the workout sessions and things like that. And then, uh, yeah, I mean, so I was never below one point or above 1.0 grams millimole of blood ketones during the entire experiment, but my fat oxidation rates were, 
50% higher what was an outlier on the chart previously. So like, I mean, I was clearly burning super high levels of fat and my body was able to utilize fat as a fuel source, even though it wasn't showing up as, as, as the same. And I see that when I test myself just through training blocks as well, where, you know, I might get back from a run where I fasted going into it in the morning. So I hadn't eaten since dinner the night before. And I come back after a workout and I have like, say like 0.5 millimoles of blood ketones. And then I test an hour later and then it spikes up. So like, there's some goofy stuff going on just from a, just, you know, the or lifestyle. You're using it really well. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't make sense to have a lot of, a whole lot of extra in the blood. If you're using it well, if you're monitor, you know, you're metering it really well. So, um, but it's great to have now. I mean, I remember Steve Finney, he, he's one of my teachers and years ago, he, kind of t- caught me at a conference and said, come on over here. And he was chatting with me and cause he, you know, plays the, the, uh, no one that listened to him. And I mean, it's true. Yeah. And he was telling me all this. And then I, I remember, I, so I met Jeff Volek and got to work with them a while. And then one time I met them, they were, they had this kind of look in their eyes, like Steve had already t- always talked about his biker data, his biker study, the biker studies. <laughs> you know, I could almost recite it. I'd heard it so much. But he came back one time when he and Jeff got together and, and did the, well, what that meant was a certain amount of fat per minute being, being you know, so it was like they re- re-looked at the data you'd had for decades to say, but that's way off the scale. And, and uh, so it's really good to have multiple minds looking at things and now having uh, the science behind it for, for exercise is really important. And hopefully we'll actually spill over into the world of, of the non-exercisers. You know, one of the things we borrowed was the idea of being a fat burning machine. I mean, that came from the runners and that was Prof Noakes and the serial killers group talking about it before I ever used that language. So I think there's a, it's great to have that research going on and the cross fertilization of the physiology. And then with the group in Tampa, um, Dom Diagostino and, and uh, Jake Wilson, that group, um, they're able to study things now that we were unable to study, you know, even 10 years ago. Um, so I'm, I'm excited about the, the new knowledge that we're having and the, and the overlap between the exercise world those who, who can't exercise but need that metabolic benefit, like diabetes or or uh, you know extreme obesity, they ought to be keto. I think. Yeah, it seems like uh, it seems like there's a lot of interesting applications with it. So it's always cool to see like the different like what what actually is getting some research behind it or what is getting used practically by people. Um, but you know the other thing too, just to add to what, what was meant, what I mentioned before in terms of just practical usage too. And, you know, I was fortunate enough to have be strapped up to a bunch of machines and get those fat oxidation rates tested and things like that. But, you know, most of the people I work with, they're not going to do that. They're not going to go into a performance lab and get all those numbers. Some of them do, and it's pretty cool to look at the data, but uh, most aren't. And they're like, well, how do I know if it's working? What do I, what do I do to, to try that out? And, um, you know, I always just like to use or tell people to kind of do a field test of yourself. Cause ultimately that's where you're trying to make it work, right? If you're trying to make this something that is usable during a race setting specifically to what I'd be helping people with. And, you know, so if it works, 
during the workout sessions, if th that should be your metric, like if you can go out for your long run, which is oftentimes, you know, Michelle can attest to this sometimes four or five hours, <laughs> then, uh, you know, if you can go out and do a, a fasted run at four to five hours with water and electrolytes and feel like pretty even keel within that, that intensity that we're targeting for that, then you're probably plenty fat adapted. And then it's like, at that point, we start looking at, well, what strategically do we want you to be eating and drinking during the race to try to like, you know, supplement just, you know, your own, your own efforts kind of on that day. And that at times, a lot of comes, a lot of times comes down to the intensity and the duration of the event itself. So there are some maybe less invasive ways to kind of find out if your dietary practices are, are working. You can always use your results and workouts as a good guide as to whether things are going, going well or not too, I think. So yeah. You know Oh, sorry, oh, I was just going to ask, you don't um, recommend the glucose or keto monitoring as you train people? I don't, I don't not recommend it. I think like if, if the person wants to do that or they're curious with it, then I definitely point them into the resources around that. Um, yeah, I, 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 same way. I don't, I don't recommend it. <laughs> it well, you don't, I don't need that to teach someone. Yeah. And usually, I mean, it's like anything it's, I, I look at it the same way as I do. If I'm introducing a low carb approach to a person, I try to make sure they understand, well, what are the things to look out for as well as the things to maybe expect from that type of a, uh, you know, a metric. So what I try to avoid is getting someone to shift their goal from performance, assuming that's their goal. You know, sometimes people come to me and they're like, I want to run this race, but my primary objectives are health and just generally being happy, in which case then we, we maybe go about things a little differently. But uh, if they say, Hey, I want to finish this race as fast as I can, I have to be careful that they're not getting, they're not changing that like metric of how did I do this workout to how high were my millimoles on the ketone reader? <laughs> and then on the opposite side, also getting feeling defeated if those come back low. Um, as I've been using uh, this biosense meter the last few months just to test like, uh, you know, breath acetone levels to kind of get an idea. And I was just talking to those guys over at there and they said that we looked at kind of my, my lifestyle and they said, oh yeah. So when you do that, just, just know like, you are probably going to register like a degree lower every time you test due to your lifestyle versus what would probably show up on that thing. If you were eating a macronutrient ratio that you are, but adjusted to a more sedentary lifestyle or a lifestyle that's maybe a little more like explosive sport-based or strength-based. Um, I found that kind of interesting too. So like on the same regard, I, I don't want to frustrate a client too, where they're like myself and they have super high fat oxidation rates, but they're getting a 0.4 millimole show up on their reading. And they're thinking, well, I'm doing everything right. Why isn't it 3.0 millimoles? Like so-and-so is on Instagram. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's the whole like analysis by paralysis. I'm actually, I kind of lean towards a little less data. Um, I do have a watch that gets my heart rate and miles, but I sometimes think people get a really a little too excited about I gotta hit this exact pacer. But that um two two things and Dr. Westman, I know you and I have talked a little bit about this, but Zach, you were talking about fat oxidation. And um when we were training for the six hour race and you know you guys know Zach is my coach, I remember we had a block where I did a four hour run one day and came back the next day and did a two hour kind of up tempo run. And the four hour run, both of them were fasted. And so I covered a little over 28 miles in that four hour run. And so a little over a marathon and then came back the next day and did, you know, a two hour and it was about 730 pace. And I knew, I just knew after that run one, I was like, oh my gosh, you know, you're a little sore. You're getting used to running on tired legs. 
but I just knew like, I'm fat adapted. Like I'm ready for this. I knew when I did that six hour race that I was not going to run out of fuel. And if you've ever run a marathon, you've ever hit the wall, you're constantly dependent on carbohydrates. Like it's hard. Like I, my splits for my six hour race were just really, really even. And it's just such a really neat thing. And not only I think is it healthy for the body, but I think it can, it can really be beneficial for endurance performance to be fat, um, fat adapted. And Dr. Westman though, we have talked about um, exercise, you know, especially for people who are, are obese or are diabetic, do they, do they have to exercise? Like what, do you have to exercise to reverse diabetes or lose weight? No, no. And, and that, you know, it's probably not something we should talk about on an exercise show, but, <laughs> but actually it relieves worry and concern. So that's one of the most common misconceptions and people will use that as an excuse not to get started. You know, my knee hurts, I can't exercise. So I won't even try to lose weight, right? You've heard that, or, you know, I have bad arthritis, I can't exercise, so why even try? No, you don't have to exercise to lose weight. So the program I do is basically 100% diet. You know, I've even heard some people, you know, well, it's 80% diet, 20% exercise. No, my program is 100% diet. And no, you don't have to exercise to lose weight. That's a misconception. Um, with a potent diet, like a keto diet, the hunger goes down, you eat less, you lose weight without any exercise at all, which you know, defies a lot of people's um, preconceived notions. But um, I'll, I'll often use that as the first time I meet someone to just you know, highlight that I talk differently than most doctors because what I do has to work. I mean, all I do is help people reverse diabetes and fix the weight, extra weight. So I'm not gonna waste time with something that doesn't work or maybe works 50% of the time. It has to work first time every time. Yeah, that, yeah, that's uh, an interesting topic too. And it introduces a question I wanted to ask you just based on kind of what you've seen over the years within the kind of clinical practice. Because I know within the low carb ketogenic community, it seems to almost kind of trend towards a scenario where people, they start eating just maybe larger meals, but less of them or having a larger space between meals. And when I think of just when I first got introduced to the approach, that was one of the first things I noticed was like, I don't ever really feel like in dire straits in the sense of like, I just need to eat something now versus like, yeah, (laughs) right, right. Yeah. But like, you know, it's, you know, I'm trying to train for these long races and putting in a lot of work too. So at the same time, once I'm at the kind of weight I want to be to race at, I got to make sure I'm getting enough in. So it's almost like a, like a back, a backwards problem of what I normally would see where, you know, when I was moderate high carb, I was never not hungry. Like I was full a lot, but I was never really not hungry. Whereas with kind of keto low carb, I feel like I'm never really hungry, but I know I need to eat. (laughs) Is that, is that like, how common because I you know I see a lot of just like back and forth on social media and stuff about people saying like oh well there's nothing inherently over satiating with ketogenic diet food staples there's carbohydrate foods that are also very satiating um as well but what do you see in turn is that like is that pretty common amongst the low-carb folks that you see in clinic stuff just finding that they can tolerate a fixed amount of calories per day a lot a lot easier or yeah, well, there are a couple of things in there. Carbs make you hungry. Uh, and that, I mean, that's the sign in my office. 
carbs make you hungry. And you would never know it's the carbs until you isolate the carbs and stop having them. Because they're Is that because of insulin? Is that blood sugar and insulin? Okay. Well, you know, uh, the, it's the old, I don't know the exact mechanism. Like, for example, um, you know, is it the gun or is it the bullet or is the person who pulled the gun? Is it the, you know, is it that, that the heart stopped? Is it, you know, what caused the, you know, I, all I know is the phenomenon of stopping the carbohydrate intake. We don't know that it's the ketosis. Some people have tried infusing ketones and then they said, oh, it doesn't reduce the hunger. And is it the insulin or the blood sugars? No one really knows, but we have a lot of ways to explain it to people. It, almost universally after a day or two, the hunger goes away or is greatly diminished so that you're eating less automatically. So Zach, your, your experience is almost uniform because carbs make you hungry. And, and so when I um, talk about when to eat intermittent fasting, things like that, I don't care. If you want to eat once a day, if you're not hungry, that's great. But if you're, you know, like powering through half the day, you're hungry, but you're intermittent fasting, getting autophagy, but you're, you're hungry. No, you should eat, you know, so the, because what's going to happen is that hunger will fade away uh, over time. And you may not know that right away, but so there's flexibility in terms of when you eat, uh, you don't have to have breakfast. If you're not hungry, you can eat right before you go to bed. Uh, you know, so a lot of things we've been taught don't apply. It's like apples and oranges. Um, we don't get the sumo wrestler effect, which is you eat everything you can and then go to sleep so that all of the extra energy that you just brought in is turned into fat because we don't have the same insulin response from the food because you're not eating the carbs. So when I was taught that just let the timing of the, the meals be flexible to, some people need to eat every hour at first if they've come from a very disordered eating or an even medical situation. So I'm very flexible in terms of when to eat and then how much to eat just kind of automatically goes down unless I see this all the time, you know, but doctor, someone else told me I need to eat three meals a day. Well, I know, but I need you to forget about what those people have said. And, you know, but all my life I've been taught breakfast is the most, no, you know, you got to unlearn those things. <laughs> so um, it's less the metabolic change and it's more the, the mindset and learning a new pattern. Someone even said to me, I've never, the only time I don't eat is when I'm sick and now I'm not eating. Am I sick? Yeah, you know, but I said, but do you feel well? Yes. <laughs> mm -hmm. so, uh, I can only imagine that if you're running on top of this, it would be maybe amplified. So it's okay, you know, you're as long as you're eating from great nutrition and a, a keto kind of nutrition pattern, as long as you're eating real food, is mm -hmm. the most nutrition one we know of, including liver, kidneys, you know, the uh, the uh, eating nose to tail. Yeah. It's interesting, like the three meal a day and then a snack or two on top of it kind of phenomenon is always one where I wonder if like, is it's kind of a chicken or egg thing, um, at least to the, to the, the shallow amount of my knowledge within the context of that. But I always think of it as like, did people end up eating three meals a day with a couple of snacks because that was kind of the blood sugar roller coaster trend that they found was the most consistent or was 
the blood sugar roller coaster trend, a byproduct of someone saying like, this is what you have to do. And then people psychologically just saying, oh, well, if that's what I'm supposed to do, that's what I'm supposed to do. Therefore, I will do it kind of a mindset. I'm afraid it wasn't a metabolic discovery or scientific thing. It was companies wanting you to buy their products. Eat more. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe I can explain. And Michelle, tell me if you think this is right. I mean, I, I met dietitians who were angry with me because I was taking carbohydrates from patients with diabetes. And it literally, I mean, very nice people. I knew them and then they become angry. You can't tell them not to eat carbs. And, and I said, why? And one took the time to talk to me and she said, because I'm saving lives. They don't get hypoglycemia. And, I, and I'm like, well, but that's only because they're on medicines and I've stopped them because I'm a doctor, remember? <laughs> so, so as long as you're stopping the medicine and stopping the carbs at the same time, you can do this. But you have to, the traditional model is the doctor puts the patient on the medicine that makes the hypoglycemia. The dietitian is saving lives by giving carbs that stops the hypoglycemia. You can pass out and if you're driving, you have an accident. So, so that's why the emotions are so high because they are saving lives, but that's only because the patients are on insulin or other medicine that makes the blood sugar go low. But then our patients, my patients don't know that it's the medicines that cause the low blood sugar. So they're being taught the root cause of this, but but I can can understand why really nice and well-intentioned dietitians would be mad at me. But then at the end of the day, I'm reversing and fixing the diabetes so those who take the time to learn, get on board. Um, and is that kind of a good description of what's going on for diabetes? Yeah, I mean, I definitely, I, I definitely hear what you're saying. In my experience, most dietitians genuinely believe that you need carbohydrates. Like even, even if you weren't on any insulin, every single person needs carbohydrates. You need the fiber, you need these antioxidants or whatever. Um, but yes, you know, I, I do feel like there's not, there's really not often good communication with the doctor. And when a patient comes in with diabetes, they're almost immediately, even before we see them, they're put on insulin. And so, yeah, then the dietitian will make sure. And that's one thing I'm not sure everybody, if you guys don't understand diabetes, if you're not familiar with it, um, it's not an exact science either. It's not like, okay, I dose you, you know, one unit for 15 grams of carbs, like that, you know, that might your blood sugar might still be high. It might be a little too low. It's, you know, it's a, I feel like our current system of how we treat diabetes in this country has, has dietitians and doctors and nurses like constantly chasing blood sugar. Do I need more insulin, less insulin, more carbohydrates, less carbohydrates. Um, but yeah, and, and hypoglycemia is considered in the hospital setting and yes, <laughs> and by dietitians too, um, to be dangerous. We will always run people high before we will run them low. Um, just because yeah, like you can pass out, you can die where if you're high, if your blood sugar is high, you'll have more long-term effects, but you tend not to have that extreme acute, you know, death. So it's, uh, it's really a mess. I think there's a lot of misinformation. Like you said, doctors may not have any education. We have dietitians that think you absolutely have to have carbohydrates and we just have an education system for dietitians that says, okay, this is what we're going to do. And, um, and it does become really disheartening. You know, I'm sure, you know, you probably saw many patients that before you switched to a low carb approach that didn't get better. And it's hard to constantly see people, um, you know, come back in the hospital setting with more injuries, more infections. And, and like you said, I, I, I don't think if you, if you guys haven't been in a hospital setting, 
it's not like we're seeing um, Bob that's 20 pounds overweight or a Mary that like bumped her elbow. It's massive. It's people with 400, 300 plus pounds. It's wounds down to the bone. It's rotting, you know, infections. Like this is a really big problem. So I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that we can all start to have more conversations and get on the same page. Yeah, and, and have a discussion earlier. You know, if someone's telling you pre-diabetes, uh, you know, wake up. You know, you yeah. don't, when a doctor starts wielding the prescription pad for diabetes and, and there's an art to selling it, it's even, it's, it's, it's not fair because, oh, this won't, this is, oh, everyone should be on metformin, they say, you know, because, you know, it makes animals live longer and, and, uh, you know, and the doctor might even say, I'm taking it too, you know, so one of my friends, an endocrinologist has diabetes and is on medications and has got his belly, you know, it's like, this is not the only way to go, but it is a kind of widespread professional thing. Now, one optimistic thing we've done is the low carb um, nutrition and, and medical experts have started a new organization called the Society for Metabolic Health Practitioners. And so we're trying to get people together to, so we'll have guidelines and, and um, hopefully one day meetings where we can share all this information. Um, but, and, and I'm hopefully you'll be part of that, Michelle. Yes, and I your signed book, up, so yes. It, it, your book's fantastic because it shows this um, desire to help and being thwarted by the profession that you really believed in. And, you know, and that's, um, that's tough. I, I went through that and, you know, almost, and I wouldn't say it's a depression, but it was despair, you know, yeah. I'm, I wanted to help. And I thought by now, after 20 years, we'd all be using this. It would be one big happy family, but that's not the way it works. Can I ask real quick with, uh, if like, let's say, for example, if I was, uh, if I had type two diabetics, diabetes, and I was working with a professional, what would they consider a point where I'm too low blood sugar wise, where I have to start like, uh, you know, I guess eating some sugar. Yeah, uh, Michelle, if you want to take that. Oh, I, my first thought would be that would be really unusual um, unless you were taking medication. Like mm -hmm. I, it's pretty rare to see a type two diet because they're almost always high because mm -hmm. the pancreas is either no longer producing insulin or their cells are no longer sensitive to insulin. And that's what the, that's why the A1C is high. You know, the A1C is a measure of their blood sugar over time. But, um, you know, it's interesting in the hospital setting. I've seen some pretty low blood sugars and people are generally, and still pretty lucid. Um, they, from my experience, we don't like people to go under about 70. I've seen them as low as 40 and the person was still relatively lucid. I'm certainly, in, at least in my experience is when it gets under 70, they start to freak out a little bit. What's your experience? Yeah. And well, just keep in mind, these are carb eaters and they're not in nutritional ketosis because now as we're getting more people doing keto, and they're, they're, you know, they have their own CGM, the continuous glucose monitor, or they're checking their blood sugar. Sometimes the blood sugar can be low and they feel fine. So I've had some people who have had 40 or 50 for their blood sugar when they're keto adapted and they feel great. And they, you know, urgently contact me and I say, well, how are you feeling? Okay. And I mean, what Volick says, and you know, when like EF Hutton, you know, those commercials and EF Hutton, when Volick says, uh, it says um, that you're not running on sugar anymore. You're running on ketones. So you, you may see blood glucose is lower than you would see in carb eaters with diabetes. 
And so how you feel is probably the most important thing. Uh, and and yeah, symptoms start generally under 70 milligrams per deciliter. I think that's about five um, or so, uh, or four and a half on millimole. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's because the the non-carb eaters, the people in ketosis, I mean, they're literally, you're burning your own body fat for fuel. So you're going to have like that nice stable energy. But people with diabetes, um, and like you said, the carb eaters, it, insulin suppresses your body's ability to burn fat for fuel. You know, it kind of switches it off. So you're going to be utilizing sugar. And so that's one reason I, I found that really interesting as a young dietitian. Like, how can people who are so obese tell me like they're so hungry, you know, or how can they, how can they even on restrictive diets not be breaking down their body fat? Well, it's because they're continuing to eat a lot of sugar and carbohydrates, which really suppresses um, the body's ability to break down fat, which also goes back to why are marathon runners obese? Why do we have obese people running 50 miles a week? And I'm not talking about, you know, the first hundred, you know, 200 people that are crossing the finish line, but it it comes back to, you know, you have, Ideally, if you want to be lean, you have to eat in a way that allows your body to burn fat for fuel. Would you say that's that's accurate, Dr. Westman? Yeah, and I had that exact same same question. You know, it's like people are walking around with a hundred pound backpack of food. You know, if it's fat, but it, it's energy, it's food. Why aren't they burning? Why aren't they opening the backpack and <laughs> eating the food from there? And it's because insulin locks up the zipper so they can't open the and get access to the food. So you're hungry all the time. And then you're eating because you're hungry. And But if you're eating carbs, it locks up the backpack even more. And so it's that vicious cycle. It even gets worse because the fat cells tell you to not move because they want, they want to maximize, like the sumo wrestler, they want to maximize the storage. So the fat cells get greedy. So the couch potato, well, when I was in Idaho, they said use couch tortilla or something, not potato, because <laughs> they didn't like the idea that it was starchy and it would, but anyway. <laughs> um, so the couch potato is lying on the couch and no energy and eating all the time, not because they're lazy and, and, and you know, it's the fat cells telling them not to move. And the fat cells telling them to eat more, so we have it all back and you know backwards in terms of the what drives the hunger and what drives the metabolism towards storing fat and why you can't get to it. It's just so much simpler if you keep the carbs low, <laughs> and and doing it earlier in life is is as much as possible to understand this. Yeah, that all makes sense. I think I, I'm somewhat curious on the low end of blood glucose stuff just because like I have been wearing a CGM often on the last few months. And I mean, it's just so eye-opening, like what affects that thing that you wouldn't expect. And I had a couple runs. I actually talked to Dr. Diagostino about this on a podcast where I was like just checking it during a run. And I had it down into the low fifties while I was running and didn't have any idea it was that low. I think like what my report on that was I didn't feel like I wanted to start sprinting at any point during that run, but I wasn't really out there to be doing sprint repeats or anything like that either. So, um, it was just kind of a weird thing. And I mean, he like kind of casually wrote something down when I told him that I was like, hopefully he's not searching for like the like number of EMT vehicles in North central <laughs> Phoenix. or anything like that. Oh, But you know, uh, I remember Jeff, uh, Jeff Wolick presenting, I don't know if it's in a paper yet, but basically the curve of where you can be fat burning in terms of VO2 max, the textbooks need to be rewritten and that you can actually be doing more aerobic kind or anaerobic sort of stuff and be a fat burner at the same time. Mm -hmm. And the curve is being shifted 
but you know, the just uh, I, I need to just for a moment tell you what I've learned about muscles. And you remember, I, as an internist, I, I think of different organ systems and yeah, the muscle is just another one. So you have skeletal muscle, you have cardiac muscle. There was a paper that came out in December, 2019, where they did a, a, a really nice examination of what cardiac muscle runs on for fuel. And, you know, they wrote it as a, like it was a surprise we've known for a long time. You put glucose, fatty acids and ketones in the same Petri dish or in their model, what do the heart muscles soak up first? It's fatty acids, fatty acids and ketones. And they, they kind of thumb their nose up to glucose. And, and it's a great read because the article was, was very sophisticated with modern measures and techniques. And it basically said the heart muscle doesn't want glucose. I mean, it's not want, it's, it doesn't use it. Um, and then um, the, that's cardiac muscle. And then skeletal muscle, I learned from these uh, people who have a kind of rare condition called glycogen storage disease. There are about a dozen different kinds. This one is called McCardle, named after the doctor who found it or talked about it. And they can't store glycogen in the skeletal muscle. And so the traditional teaching is, well, we need to give sugar to these people and children. We need to force sugar. We wake them up at night to feed them sugar. We, we give them long, uh, slow, slow absorption carbs to, so they can always have sugar. Well, it was the people with McArdle themselves who started to do keto, who found that they could actually like go climb a mountain when they couldn't walk you know, 50 yards without stopping before because their muscle was burning fat now. And, and so every time you gave glucose and sugar to these people who couldn't store sugar, they, you were turning off the fat burning in the muscle. Again, it's that blood sugar going up, insulin going up. And uh, that story is, is fascinating because they came to a low carb meeting. It might've been the same one in San Diego. And uh, there were four people who got up and we wrote a case series, put it in the literature. And then the, one of the people who had McArdle wrote the paper and got the group of researchers together, world-class researchers. And now they're starting to study it because people started doing it, started doing it on their own. You know, and I think this is a similar phenomenon for the, the, you muscle users, you extreme muscle users, you marathoners, and hopefully the researchers you know, who have the exquisite lab and detail, you know, federally funded agencies will, will start to study this uh, because it's, it, as a general rule, it's been a grassroots change. People starting it on their own and asking for more help and figuring out how to do it. Um, but I wanted to give you those two things I learned about muscle, the skeletal muscle and the cardiac muscle, which um, was pretty fascinating to me. That's cool. That's very cool. Yeah, it's really interesting stuff. I think uh, we've got a lot to learn <laughs> or continue to learn. <laughs> relearn, maybe? I don't know, in your case, Dr. West, maybe relearn. <laughs> Not you, but us relearn what you learned 30 years ago. <laughs> well, I'm learning as we go. <laughs> Awesome. Yeah, I think uh, I don't want to take up too much of your time, Dr. Westman. I know you're a busy guy and we are both really grateful that you were able to take some time out and chat with us about this stuff. But um, I want to give you an opportunity to uh, uh, add anything you want to add or share with uh, the listeners where they can find you or if there's anything interesting kind of that they should keep an eye out for. 
Sure. Well, again, it's been my pleasure to, to be with you. Um, I have a lot of free information at drwestmanonline.com that people can just get resources. And it's kind of my favorite internet sources. To, um, not a very detailed place, but we also have a new book called End Your Carb Confusion that's available at any bookseller now. And also a new digital platform for classes at adapterlifeacademy.com. I hope to help, uh, our goal is to help 20,000 people in the next three years. And we may actually achieve that. The, the digital uh, uh, scaling up is pretty amazing. It's, it's been a lot of fun so far. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Russman. Michelle, did I, uh, did I forget to add anything that you wanted to chat about yet? No, this was amazing. Thank you, Zach. And thank you, Dr. Westman. I really appreciate it. And Dr. Westman, thank you for being someone who was willing to take a look at my book and do such an incredible review. I really appreciate that. My pleasure. Awesome. And before we sign out, Michelle, where can listeners find you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm on Instagram at run, eat, meet, repeat. All one word, kind of the story of my life, run, eat, meet, repeat. I have a website, thedietitiansdilemma.net. Um, the Dietitian's Dilemma, the book and the ebook is on Amazon. And I'm on Twitter at Michelle Hearn RD. Awesome. Thanks a bunch, both of you. It's going to be a fun, fun project with these episodes. And uh, this one, I think, will be a, a good, good way to kick it off. Cool. Thank you, Zach. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please consider checking out my website at ZachBitter.com or my social media channels at ZachBitter on Instagram, at ZBitter on Twitter, and at Zach.Bitter on Facebook. You can also support the show by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite podcast platform. If you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to send me an email at HPOPodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.